0: When you have no certainty about the future, you act on principle. And uh, I think it's the same here, is we know we have a massive climate problem and we have to act on principle and then navigate, right? Is We'll discover things along the way. And that will be true for, for investors and it will be true for companies and it will be true for governments.
1: This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI
0: Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones.
1: My name is Lawrence Jones, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Roland Cooper's, who is author of the new book, Climate Revolution. What complexity is going to teach us about climate science and how we should advance the issue of climate change and some of the other issues that we're facing in society? Roland, welcome to EEI. Hi, Lawrence. Thank you. Um, fantastic book, congratulations. And I would like to begin Roland by first asking you to tell us a little bit about your background because when I did my initial research, you didn't really start off in complexity science. So tell us your journey to complexity. How did you get into this very interesting field?
0: Well, the interesting thing is that I actually did start in complexity at some, to some extent. I studied theoretical physics and graduated doing research on fractals which in a sense is is part of complexity and is, is, was part of the science that led to what's now complexity science. But um, after that first uh, toe in the water, in a sense, um, I spent 25, 23 years in industry, half of it working for AT&T and half for Shell, but always retained my interest in, so, you know, how does stuff really work underneath what they tell us? Um, so I retained an interest in complexity, I spent some time, a sabbatical at some point um, at the Santa Fe Institute and, um, um, and, and really rebuilding some intellectual capital and, and figuring out the, the incredibly exciting discoveries over the past three decades, really, two or three decades, as a, as a new scientific approach is emerging, um, which has enormous consequences for the way we view the world. And so that's been my interest in combining working in practice in industry and particularly in the energy sector. Um, and now for the past 10 years I've left industry and I've really become a, a, a mix of an academic writing a number of books this is my fourth book um, but also do, continuing to do advisory work for the UN, for large NGOs, and teaching in various places. So trying to bridge um, this incredibly revolutionary and exciting stuff that's happening around complexity science with how can it make a difference to the way we run our world on Monday morning, right? Because in the end, you know, we're, we're, tr- we're also trying to get something practical done. So, to try to combine and bridge these two realities.
1: Interesting. So, a climate policy revolution, what struck me when I read the book was the word revolution. And in the context of complexity science, Tell us a little bit about those two words, complexity, science, and revolution. Why do you think they're relevant in the context of climate policy? And we'll get into the climate policy discussion, but just so the audience can understand the word revolution is not something you think of obviously in the context of complexity and climate change. So how do you come up with that, that concept?
0: It's about discontinuities, right? A lot of our traditional science is about smooth developments, is how does change happen smoothly? And You know, the problem with climate is that we've waited so long, uh, we've procrastinated so long to do something about it, that we now can no longer depend on gradual change. So we need nonlinear change, we need sudden change, And, uh, and that's essentially what revolutions are, right? They are like phase transitions, like when water turns to ice or to vapor, and the And, you know, it's obviously easy to call for a revolution and it doesn't mean very much. But the wonderful thing about complexity science is is that it opens the cover a little bit about you know, how do these kinds of nonlinear changes, these sudden changes actually happen? What things do you need to put in place to make that more likely? And so that's what I was applying to climate policy, saying, you know, what is it we know about or we understand or start to understand about how systems change suddenly or at least very quickly? And how can we apply some of those things to, you know, accelerating our action on climate policy?
1: and i think it's fascinating you talk about accelerating the action on climate policy uh in the book you begin very early on bringing the contrast or the similarity between uh complexity science and economics and you talk about the issue of equilibriums and what equilibriums mean in a sort of a traditional way of thinking about economics and and you seem to sort of argue for why we need to not abandon economics as part of this conversation but maybe think of it differently can you tell us a little bit about this correlation between economics and complexity science in the context of climate?
0: Yeah, so economics, I mean, I spent actually quite a lot of time in a previous book on on, on this topic. Um, Economics, and it's the economics that's used in policy, right? At the cutting edge of economic science, there's all sorts of exciting stuff happening around complexity. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about the more run-of-the-mill economics that get applied to running stuff in government and companies. Um, and that very much is based on an early view of economics, which dates, almost dates back to the 19th century. Um, which assumes away all the elements of complex systems, and at the time, people thought, you know, you know, economics, are a really messy subject. You know, why don't we simplify it a bit? You know, why don't we assume things are in equilibrium, that they're closed, that. You know, people are perfectly rational, and so they've put in place a number of assumptions that essentially eliminate the complexity and the nature of complex systems. And you 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 limit so the study is now limited to non-complex systems. The problem is we understand that many issues in the world are actually complex. I mean, and that I mean in the technical sense, not in the sense of complicated, but in the sense of complex. Um, and economics is it deals with that very poorly. You can see it. For example, if you look at the IPCC reports, right, the International Panel on Climate Change that um, issues these comprehensive overviews of the state of our knowledge on climate, you see the climate scientists, you know, tripping over each other to introduce a language of uncertainty. So, you know, this we know with great certainty, this we, we have, you know, doubts about, and there's this whole conditioning about how much we know about the climate system. And then they throw that over the wall to the economists, who say, "Right, and if we take that action, it would cost us 0.5 percent of GDP by 2050." And you can't forecast, you know, GDP in the next quarter with that. With that, uh, in the real world, you can in a in a in an artificial system. So, so economics, you know, the, as it's applied to to generally to um, to climate policy, is profoundly unhelpful and has been very much in the way of taking action on climate.
1: Yeah, and you know, one of the the fascinating things I think with complex systems is the notion of phase transitions and phase shifts and when they occur. Yeah. And would you consider Paris uh you know, the Paris Agreement was that a tipping point would you think of it? And if so, to what extent were some of the bottom-up approaches uh catalysts to making Paris work as opposed to Copenhagen? Yeah, I don't think
0: um that Paris is a is a is a phase shift, but it, it is a, a, a dramatic shift in approach, which actually does tie to to complexity. Is that, you know, all the way from the so the original Kyoto Agreement to Copenhagen, the approach was right, you know, we have a certain amount of emissions we can do, and so we divide them up by country, and everybody has to sign up to this amount. And so there was kind of a top-down program of what you could do. And we know from social complexity from the complexity of, of social system is that that actually doesn't work it, it's never worked and uh, some people who understood um, there actually it was three remarkable women who were at the heart of the change of the climate of the paris climate agreement understood that and and said well we need a more bottom-up approach and that was the invention of the ndcs the nationally defined contributions and so countries submitted essentially what they wanted, what they could do. But then the brilliance of Paris is they said, okay, and collectively, we, we recognize that adding all these up doesn't do the trick, and we'll agree to a ratcheting mechanism. Every five years, we're going to come back together and say, okay, you know, we didn't do our homework. We're going to collectively do, try to do better. And that's first time next year in Glasgow. So it's that combination of bottom-up Together with a ratcheting mechanism every five years that I would call a complexity approach. Mm. Um, so in itself, you know, it's too early to say whether it's a phased shift in in our action on climate, but the it it is a shift from a sort of purely top-down approach to one that that takes into account the insights that we have in how change really happens in society, and and it should also happen uh, for climate policy.
1: So so policymaking is a it's a it's a messy business. It's very complex in and of itself with a lot of interrelated parts. And you talk in the book about how complexity is science, it's about the interconnectedness of systems, which is it's a very good way to look at it. Now, from the standpoint of complexity literacy, which is something you talk about in the book, how do we get public policy makers to embrace a complexity mindset or to use complexity lens as we begin to think about some of the big public policy issues. And we'll come back and talk about COVID-19, uh, which hit the world in 2020 and we're in 2021 and and, and we see a lot of mistakes already happening with regards to COVID nineteen. But let's just talk about climate uh, complexity literacy. How do we educate public policy makers or have society to embrace complexity science? I
0: mean it's an interesting question, right? In, in a sense, so, so complexity for, for the audience who may not be familiar with it is the science of interconnected system, right? It comes from plexus in Latin, which means to braid. So it's the science of braided systems. It has nothing to do with the complex relationship you may have with your father-in-law or something. It, it's, it's a very different uh, technical term. And, but my experience is that actually most serious policymakers really understand these dynamics rather well. Um, I'm just reading a biography of Talleyrand, who was the uh, absolutely remarkable politician at the first half of the 19th century, who put together a lot of what Europe is today. It's very clear that those people and wise policymakers really understand the interconnected nature of systems. Um, And so what complexity does is is it adds a language, a scientific language to an understanding that already by and large exists with many, but it also allows them then to articulate and defend those policies. And now uh, in the absence of that, you run into a wall of economists or reductionists, people who would say, well, you have to prove and you have to model and you have to demonstrate and you get into this whole so, so I'm. It, I I don't think it's something that policymakers you know need to be educated and and explain something that they don't understand. I think many of them actually do. Uh, but that this formal language and modeling just strengthens and and puts more coherence on something that they already. Um, to, to quite an extent know how to do politicians is a little bit of a different story, but I think policymakers actually, you know, certainly the serious ones are 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 uh, um, it's not a huge step, which which I think. Gives me some room for optimism.
1: Yeah, so, I, I I find it intriguing that you say you know you make a distinction between policymakers and politicians, because uh, I I want to bring into this conversation society as a whole. Uh, at the outset of the book, Roland, you talk about the issue around societal norms and yeah. to what extent there it's it's in and of itself is very complex. And so how do we get average citizens? Because you also talk about kicking the consumption habit at one point in the book, right? How do we change the complex nature of human behavior, consumption, and societal norms, voting Po- democracy, how do all these complex human created systems, how do we manage them uh, and how we oh, talk yeah. about them for the average person to understand? Well,
0: the good news is the average person doesn't necessarily need to understand how norms come about, but we we understand from from complexity science and social complexity that social norms, you know, are, most of them were not born with them. They arise out of the context in which we live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you understand how they can arise, then you can see how you could change the context so that they lead to a different set of social norms. Um, and, you know, one, one super example, which I, I also give in the book, is that it, it's quite well uh, quantitatively documented that having solar panels on your house is a contagious thing. If your neighbors have solar panels, you are more likely to have solar panels. And that's, you know, isn't a virus, obviously, but it's simply following the examples and having a chat to your neighbor and saying, why is this, etc. And the modeling of that contagion is literally the same models as for epidemics. Obviously, it's a good epidemic, right? Not a bad one. Yeah. Um, but you know, the speed of propagation depends on the topology of the city, but also on the level of trust and the social fabric that exists. And you know, this is just a small example, but for most social norms, including consumption and uh, of uh, all sorts of things, uh, th- those things arise out of out of the context that we have and if you, if you start to look for that as a policymaker, you can think of how to change that. A wonderful example of that in the US is the GI Bill that was enacted after the end of the Second World War, um, which was fantastic, right? I know there is that it enabled returning GIs to build a house, et cetera. I know there were controversies around race, et cetera, in, in, in that, but you know, in large extent, it was to facilitate uh, the GIs to come back and 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 b- help them reintegrate into society. But it was structured in such a way that it incentivized standalone houses. And and in fact, you know, the, the entire development of suburbia and the, the layout of American cities um, is what you would call an emergent property of the GI Bill. So, Policymaker, and I'm—I I'm, doubt, but actually I'm not—I don't know whether that was an intended outcome or an unintended outcome. But the point is, you know, quite a small bill can have an enormous effect on society. Um, and what I'm calling for in the book is look for those, right? Look for those small bills that tweak. Our, our infrastructure in a way that it, that it leads to very large change and, and rapid change. And it's possible, there are quite a few examples, um, but I, I would call on policymakers to look for those purposefully in, in, in climate policy. And that's beyond the, the, the standard economic in, in narrative of, well, you have to give people financial incentives, et cetera, because those work up to a point, but they're also quite limited. So it's this changing the context that leads to this to this rapid uh, propagation um, that, that's that's possible, but you, you need to put on that sen- that lens and go look for them, right? And, and find a
1: couple of people who can help you with whom you can debate and figure out uh, what, what candidates might be around. So we have a, a global audience listening to this podcast, and I wanna put complexity in the context of sort of uh, the United Nations, Uh, And and I bring that because you mentioned climate, and that's the basis of the book. What do you think are some of the differences in applying a complexity mindset in, let's speak, three regions of the world, for example, contrast policymakers in Europe to policymakers in the US, and say, policymakers in sub-Saharan Africa? How can complexity science be viewed from those three sort of uh, geographical locations, given the cultural yeah. norms? You can talk about it, I think it'll be helpful for the audience.
0: Yeah, I don't. I think it's applicable in all contexts. It's obviously not the same, right? But but the point of complexity science is to is to better characterize and understand the system that you're trying to change. Mm. And obviously, in an in a sub-Saharan African country, the system is very different than a European country or the U.S. But it's still a system that has social dynamics that that are um, that that you need to understand and that you need to understand how to change. So I think it is really equally applicable in, in, in all these different contexts. Um, in fact, it can even be more helpful because one of the points I make in the introduction to the book is that I'm not opposed to top-down change for, for the climate, right? If somebody could say, stop using coal, and people would actually do that, that would be great. The, the reality of the world is that we can't. It's just not possible. We We failed to put in top-down action that's proportionate to the issue that we have. And so therefore we have to look for these bottom-up systemic issues. Um, now, particularly for sub-Saharan African countries or, or with countries with weaker governance, um, the top-down action is in even a more unlikely route. You could imagine at some point, you know, maybe a European country driving top-down change, maybe. But in, in, in countries with weaker governance, you actually need to have a richer tool set at your disposal. and, and it becomes even more important uh, to look at these, at these systemic change options uh, rather than just waiting for, you know, what essentially is the great father figure who will save us, right? by giving an order to do something. The, the, what what's pretty clear is that that has not happened for climate policy and is very unlikely to happen. so anybody who advocates you know just wait for somebody to pass a law or to change something it just it, you know we haven't done it and it's and and it's you know hope is not a strategy right? So I think this approach is equally valid, but I would say perhaps even more valid for, uh, for countries with weaker governance, where you have to, to look at these more collaborative and bottom-up, uh, uh, bottom-up dynamics.
1: So if we, if we stay on the issue of governance, and you talk in chapter three of the book about network literacy and the importance of networks and the legal system, and and also maybe the energy network, which we can come back to, given that most of the audience here have an energy interest. But let's talk about network literacy in the context of the United Nations. We've had a lot of issues over the last couple of years about the reforming the United Nations. And so if you're given a pen, how would you use complexity science language or complexity theory to help us redesign or reimagine institutions like the United Nations that is very, very complex with a lot of networks, human networks, to make it function? What, what can we do with the tools and, and, the, and the examples you put forward in complexity science to say fix institutions like the United Nations?
0: Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. I'm a huge fan of the UN, right? And I know there aren't that many. I, I work quite a lot with the UN, actually, and, and it's an amazing organization. Um, but the thing is that it it's not meant to be efficient, right? Is it's meant to be highly complex and to make it as complex as possible because we're looking to maximize interaction in the UN because the point is avoiding avoiding war, right? That's why we have the UN in principle. Um, so I think that the thing that the the one thing is to put more distance between the core UN bit that's about uniting the world and the actual del- service delivery organisations, right? Where there you actually really do want efficiency, right? The the refugee organisations and the World Food Programme, etc., and and even something like the um, uh, the World Health Programme, you want them perhaps more businesslike and efficient. But the core of the UN, uh, you know, I think it's largely fit for purpose obviously it could be made better and the security council's a problem etc but um and something like that i think uh, applies also you know we've just had brexit right last week um to some extent i think it's also a huge misunderstanding where where the the british were had this whole language of you know saying that the european union is inefficient and and complex etc and to my mind, if you're a complexity literate, you, you say that's exactly what you want. The EU is incredibly complex, and that's what we need, and it's and it does the job magnificently, not perfectly, <laughs> but magnificently. So if if you have this complexity literacy and, and can describe them in, in such a way, I think you learn to also appreciate bits of you know organizations like the UN and the EU more. Uh, for for what they are and they're able to do, uh, mm-hmm. because the language of business and efficiency is is really the not the language of complexity and is not uh, fit for purpose for those organizations.
1: So uh, let's let's then zero in on you mentioned business a couple of times in the last yeah. your last uh, response, and I want to talk about leadership and the role of having complexity literacy as a leader given where the world is today and given the challenges we face how should business and corporation uh, embrace and apply ideas of complexity science and not just see it as some abstract theoretical concept what's what are some of the practical applications of complexity science if are uh, if you are if, if if you are the ceo of a company Large or small, how can you use the idea of complexity science to maximize value for your corporation and your stakeholders?
0: It that's an interesting question. I, I put a, a, a obviously, I worked in industry for a long time, so it's an issue I, I know well. And I put a whole chapter in this book saying that, you know, by and large, companies do not do complex things. Right? Is they out of the complex fabric of society, they carve out a very small bit. And they try to put walls around it so that it doesn't get messed up by other stuff. And then they try to do that hugely efficiently, and, and, and that's admirable, right? None of that's easy. But they actually try to eliminate the complexity quite purposefully. And that's also one of the reasons when lots of when you see these great transitions um, in society, the IT revolution, and you know, now we'll have the climate changes in society as well. Most of the incumbent companies fall by the wayside, and new companies come around. Because as an institution, companies are actually not designed to change very much. They innovate, obviously, and and fantastically within the envelope where they are. And so, um, I think the whole complexity literacy is more is more important for public policymakers and and uh, and politicians, et cetera, and perhaps a little bit less uh, for for CEOs who, who deal with less complex matters, and I, I think it's also not a coincidence that um, CEOs turn out to be completely incapable of, of, uh, of doing public policy jobs. Right? Being a CEO and being a
1: mayor is a completely different job. It is, and, and it brings me to the issue of energy. Yeah. Right? So the energy system, as we know it in the world today, is heavily guided by regulation and policy. So there is complexity there. So as a CEO functioning in an energy system, you need to understand and embrace the complexity of policy and all of these other things. From your viewpoint, as we think of the climate revolution that you talk about in the book, how do we get policymakers and business to to sort of a bridge the divide in understanding what needs to happen in terms of the urgency of now? Because I think that's where the issue sometimes, in the book, you give several examples of when you talk about sort of a very interesting policies that were small, but had big impacts. How do policymakers and business, that, that synergy, how should it work in this complex field of climate? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing we have to realize is
0: that The opinions of the companies, unfortunately, we we should be a little bit careful with, because many of them will disappear, right? Uh, I think many of the oil and gas companies that we know will go by the wayside. I mean, if you just look at their stock valuation over the past five years, you know, they're clearly on the they're out of the SP500, et cetera. Uh, We've seen the the coal companies, um, you know, starting, essentially, many of the coal companies are as good as bankrupt around the world or very close to, et cetera. So we're starting to see this transition. So the first thing is to realize that, you know, the existing companies, most of them are not going to be around and obviously not the people, right? Is, you know, people matter, companies a little bit less. So so people have to be helped with the transition and there has to be social mechanisms to get them into new jobs because that's incredibly important. But if we try to protect the incumbents too much, it, it will really get in the way. And one of the curious things about complexity is that, you know, the energy system today is much less complex than the one of the of the future, right? And quite simply, because it's highly centralized, a much more decentralized energy system will necessarily be more complex. And I've always found it curious that, you know, there's a number which is over the past 20 years, has changed enormously. Is, people used to say, oh, you know, if you have more than, you know, 10% renewables in a, in a power network, it will become unstable. And then it was 20. And, you know, maybe we, you know, you can't do more than 50. <laughs> um, and obviously, now we see, you know, networks that are sometimes 100% renewables, and yet they don't collapse. And why is that is because you know we're smart. We innovate, right? When when we learn, when there are more of these renewables and the networks get more complex, we find other tools and techniques to keep them synchronized and keep the phases, the 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 phase plan of the of the grid working, etc. Um, but but we have to embrace the fact that 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 the power system will become much much more complex than it is today. Um, and we have to get be excited by that and saying, well, that's a cool problem to solve, <laughs> as opposed to say, well, our current company can't deal with that. No, it can't. So either it will have to adapt, or new companies will have to come around. Um, and w- one of the wonderful examples, I think, is you know, for for a long time, you know, the big hurdle for electric vehicles was going to be their charging grid. You know, you need to have many charge points, and <laughs> You know Tesla just shrugged its shoulders and built its own recharging infrastructure around the world. Every hundred kilometers, pretty much everywhere, you can recharge your car. And while everybody was talking about this huge problem, they just did it. <laughs> and so we 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 get fixated on on this uh, um, on these on on these issues and and. Uh, so, so the energy system will get much more complex, and we have to be excited by that and say, great, you know, that's a challenge. We're, we're, we're going to meet that. And, and it's a fun problem to solve and it needs to be solved. Uh, but the incumbents will will will, will resist uh, often. Um, and, and that's unhelpful for, for the climate, right? It's helpful for the companies, but not for the climate.
1: So that so let's talk a little bit about the the issue of this change that has to happen. And you, you talk about the the role of the incumbents vis-a-vis the, the the new actors, but what about the unintended consequences of the climate revolution that you talk about? And but specifically you talk in the book about the coal miners, uh them needing, you know, they need an alternative. Uh there are other disruptions we see. COVID nineteen uh, that's came in 2020 has disrupted the world in ways we could not have imagined. And there are so many unintended consequences that are coming with COVID. How do we, what do we learn from complexity science in terms of how we navigate our way, our, our way out of this pandemic? But also how do we come out of the pandemic in a way that we can be better resilient or more resilient going forward? What lessons can we learn from complexity science so that we can better manage the next pandemic, but also manage the climate revolution?
0: Yeah, so there, there are a few uh, dimensions to this. First of all, a pandemic is completely a complex is is like a masterclass in complexity right is all you know the r factor that everybody now knows about and and you know all these you know social distancing and and the whole agonizing public debate about which measures work and which don't etc is literally complexity policy in practice yes. and the frustratedness of the fact of that you know we don't know what quite works which is pretty obvious with a pandemic, but with other policy issues, it's the same. Except we pretend that we know the answer, but it's this kind of navigation of a complex problem. Um, so, so, so I think one thing's been useful is that is this kind of masterclass in how to conduct complexity policy, and as hard as it is, right? The the other thing is that um, it's also pretty clear that that pandemics such as this one, uh, is, is certainly related to climate policy, right? Is we, we've driven nature, uh, into a corner and, um, and we can expect more of these, you know, wait for COVID-25, right? Or, or something worse. Um, and so that, you know, hopefully people have realized that there is, there is truly a limit to how much you could, we can mess with nature and that now, uh, I, I hope there's a greater purpose that we really need to, to take nature more seriously. And the third thing is all of us, you remember the days when a trillion dollar used to be a lot of money, right? Exactly. <laughs> and now it's kind of, well, you know, why don't we spend two trillion on this and maybe a trillion on that. And uh, whereas actually, I think, you know, climate policy isn't that expensive because a lot of it's investment, but there are actually returns on that investment, Uh, uh uh, the, the amount of capital that needs to be mobilized is large. And and I think it'll be easier to mobilize large amounts of capital now. And I think
1: that'll be immensely helpful. Do you see, Roland, the issue of the unintended consequences? I want to come back to the coal miners, yeah. but not necessarily them, but, but yeah. as we disrupt and move yes. a revolutionary cycle, we certainly will see certain jobs go away, whether it's yeah. due to the pandemic or it's due to climate policy. Yeah. So... How do we prepare society for the reality of these unintended consequences that that show themselves once we go through the revolution? And how do we mitigate some of the impacts of these unintended consequences?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and I, so I think inequality, so social inequality is one of the biggest climate problems we have. Um, and I think, you know, people in the U.S. tend to characterize the, you know, the social justice side of the Green New Deal as a left Issue and I don't think it is. It's a systemic issue. Um, is that in order to change a system, you, you you need to have ways of compensating. There will always be winners and losers in a great change, and so you'll need to have the means, but also the social mechanisms to to compensate and and help those who 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 uh, who, who suffer in these changes. Um, you know, I have a chapter, for example, on how autonomous vehicles can be a very useful climate policy, which is a long, too long a story to make now. But one of the very likely side effect of autonomous vehicles is that in, in most uh, certainly developed countries, truck and taxi driving is, is one of the main employment areas, particularly for men with low education. And if those jobs disappear, then you have millions of people who at least had, who are at the you know lower rungs of the social ladder, who at least had some way into the into society, who lose that, um, and that's an enormous problem both from a social justice perspective, but also just from a social stability point of view, because those people are going to get angry, vote for the wrong people, or start throwing Molotov cocktails, and so uh, uh this, this isn't, I don't think it's, a, it's a, a, a left or a right issue, but is a systemic, from a systems lens, is that with these enormous changes, you are going to have, and I don't think they're even unintended consequences, they are intended consequences, right? But, but you need to deal with them. You can't just shut your eyes. Um, yes, you know, the coal miners is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see much, much greater upheaval. And and we have to plan for that. And just like the GI Bill was, you know, or, or the Marshall Plan, it's, you have these big programs that have been designed o- during history to to help, uh, you know, alleviate, you know, alleviate um, big social change. So, you know, the focus, you know, Obama when he left, a little bit late, I think. Said that inequality is going to be one of the deciding issues of our time. And I think that's true. Um, but quite practically, because it gets in the way of change uh, quite independently, which also is an issue, right? You may think it's unequal, it, you know, you may think it's unethical, etc. But simply if you want to to get the degree of change that's required to do proper climate policy, you're going to have you, you're going to require a lower level of inequality or else the system will just
1: freeze up and it won't move so how do you how do you then change our value system and and i bring this up because you also talk about it at some point in the book when you talk about kicking the consumption habits our value system the economic system is based on an assumption of consuming more to to sort of be more successful and so you have this sort of a consumption mindset that's baked into how we think And so if we're going to bring about a climate revolution as prescribed in the book through public policy, how do we begin to plan for these kinds of disruptions that will occur say on the employment side, but also in terms of our lifestyle where the things we used to do, we will no longer be able to do it. How do we plan for that from a a policy design standpoint? I mean,
0: it's another side effect of the COVID thing. I think we've discovered all sorts of stuff we really don't need, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, that's been a grand experiment in changing consumption habits. But also there are these, you know, it wasn't meant or ever intended to be that way. That You know, if you read the classical economists in the 30s, like Keynes, etc., they really thought that above a certain level of income, we'd all furiously start writing poems and and uh, and you know making watercolors or whatever. <laughs> um, and so, this addiction to consumption um, has been a side effect, a emergent property of the modern economy. There is very little indication that it's an inherent human trait. If you if you look at anthropologists, etc., so so we have a a morbid you know a, we've acquired a bad habit that was never intended, um, and so we need to think about you know what what how did this habit come about and how can we change the context so that we acquire a different set of habits, uh, and I think that's is not easy but is actually quite doable and is a really interesting problem to work on, right. To say, and, and it and it doesn't. And one of the examples I quote in the book, for example, is that um, eating less red meat is one of the most powerful climate policies we can we could do, right? Because red meat is an incredible contribution to to um, to warming. Now, obviously, uh, outlawing meat or telling people to eat less meat. Is, is it will be profoundly unhelpful and, and will never pass mustard politically, right? It, that's just not going to happen. But we know that social norms are contagious and we acquire them from others. And one of the open questions is when people become vegetarians, do they become so because their children tell them or is it a TV ad or where does it come from? Where does the change come from? And can we stimulate more of that change? And the wonderful thing is that when your social norms change, you don't regret the previous set because they're your norms. (laughs) It's just when somebody else tells you to change them that you get angry, rightfully so. And so understanding the organic process of the formation of social norms is really important for things like having more vegetarians. Um, And it's a little bit like the example I gave before about the contagion of solar panels. Um, you know, if you buy solar panels because you admire your neighbor who has them, you're really happy about them, um, and and so it's this type of contagious change that that we need to foster for these climate-friendly habits. And and so it doesn't go through prohibition or even financial incentives, um, but it goes. It it looks at the root of the of how norms are formed. And I'm relatively optimistic in the sense that. It can be done because it's not us, right? Humans have are not, you know, don't have a preference for destroying the climate and over consuming is we've we've been put into that position, but it's not inherently a human a human trait. So we can also get rid of this habit. Mm.
1: Yeah, we were we're, we're we're a few minutes uh, to wrap it up here, Roland, but I want to jump on two topics that I know uh they're dear to your heart because we talked about it in our prep. <laughs> for this podcast. One is complex systems as a common interface for discussing these complex issues. And, And I want specifically, if you could just give your thoughts on the economics of climate change and how complexity science could provide the interface for the investment community and the public policy community and the technology providers to coexist and to work in a way that bring about this climate revolution we want. How do those three players, the investors, policymakers, and the technology providers? Yeah. I mean, the first thing
0: is we have to recognize that we do not have the economic science to be able to understand and model these kinds of transitions, just like we didn't have the economic science to model and predict the economic impact of a COVID pandemic. And that isn't blaming economists, it's just the state of the art isn't there. So we should stop using economic forecasts and models about climate policy that are really neither here nor there. and. The great thing is that humans are really good at this stuff, is we know how to deal with ambiguity, because we do it in our private lives all the time, is when you have no certainty about the future, you act on principle. And uh, I think it's the same here, is we know we need we have a massive climate problem, and we have to act on principle, and then navigate, right, is is we'll, we'll discover things along the way. And, and that will be true for, for investors, and it will be true for companies, and it will be true for governments once they accept, and, and that's really shifted over the past couple of years, right? once they accept that this is a really big deal, and that we don't know what the impact is going to be, but that we it's a discovery process rather than a forecasting process. I think that that's quite liberating and uh, and will release all sorts of creativity. But the the first thing is to recognise that the the economists are not going to help us in that in 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 the long term forecast. Obviously, you know, with all sorts of you know economics, obviously matters, but not as a as a as a way of guiding the macro change.
1: Yeah, and 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 it's funny you mentioned the. The, the issue of forecasting, because I want to zero in a very interesting, small little subject uh, part of your book, but very interesting one, is what you call the vision thing, uh, when you yeah. talk about vision. And I'm all about this issue of long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. And how does complexity science help us design visions for the future? Uh, you talk about Europe, you talk about China, and, and you say the US is in the process of developing its vision. How important is complexity science in terms, of, in terms of creating a vision that you can bring your population behind?
0: I, I think it's the insight that complex systems, you know, we understand or you know, start to understand what their dynamics are and they change, but they must be given a direction of change. And that's where vision comes in. So something like you know, the fact that the Chinese government has adopted a vision of China as an ecological civilization is a huge thing, I think, because it starts to guide all sorts of little micro decisions that individuals make within the complex system to align with that credible goal. And in in that sense, I think what complexity helps us is understand what the function of the vision thing actually is, is that it's actually a functional thing that influences the way the system behaves. Um, and the way it works is that it's not that everybody aligns to the vision, but it's that when that when it influences, it it tweaks a little bit, all sorts of micro decisions that get made. And the sum of all those little tweaks become really meaningful. Um, and so it helps us understand why that's so crucial but it only helps of course when a vision is credible right you if it's just some leader who blurts out something then then it doesn't work right it has to be worked through and and uh and a credible contextual uh and so i'm i'm a, uh, you know just from a literary point of view i think you know ecological civilization is kind of an amazing term um the european green deal uh, i think you know they should Go a little bit deeper into Europe's literary um, history to come up with something a little bit more <laughs> uh lofty. And I'm still hoping the US comes up with something that's that's inspiring, as as the US has often done throughout history, right? Just to figure out, you know, not the silly names they tack onto bills, but <laughs> real, real vision things. Um and, and it matters a lot. Um uh, and complexity science helps us understand why that's an important element and not just a nice to have.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I'll wrap up with one question. You mentioned Europe, um, and we've had Brexit, uh, and we're in the US. We're uh, on the sort of uh, the precipice of a new administration in the US, and the world is going to be going through a lot of interesting changes over the next 12, 24 months. Uh, if you were sitting, Uh, in Brussels, uh, uh, the European Commission, or you were sitting in Washington DC, or you were in Beijing with uh, all these world leaders, what would be three words of advice you would give them in in applying complexity science to some of the big decisions they're going to have to make? And specifically, I'm thinking of three areas, one, pandemic, two, climate, and three, economics what would you give them in terms of advice as to how they could harness this important concept of complexity science to make a better world for all of us
0: yeah i mean <laughs> tra- tragically it's the it's the it's the ultimate thing that doesn't er- reduce itself to one-liners right is and that's why it's a it's a messy story um i think all of these, are the same in the sense that both pandemics and the economy and climate are all complex systems and therefore if you want to understand each three of them there's a generic set of 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 understandings that that you need to get um so so i think that you know it is really about about having policymakers being complexity literate and that's not a huge thing it's not a very big lift and i think it would make an enormous difference if that was more explicitly part of the language And since you mentioned the US and the UK, Brexit, I mean, one of the things you understand with a complexity lens is that a two-party system is a bad idea to run a complex system. It's just not a good principle if you think through the systemic, and that's part of the issues I think most of the Anglo-Saxon countries have had with the two-party system, with increasing complexity of society. You see that the governance system starting to crash and and from a complexity lens you understand that you say well actually that's not a good way to run a to uh, not to run to run a country uh, when it gets more complex in the 18th century it was probably a good idea but it no longer is so all those things are are little complexity hints
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah and and really i think you know the book itself it's a it's a it's not just a good read it's also very insightful from the standpoint of looking at some of these issues We couldn't go through every chapter in the book, so I will certainly recommend it for anyone out there listening to this podcast to get a copy of A Climate Policy Revolution, What the Science of Complexity Reveals About Saving Our Planet. Uh, Our guest has been Roland Coopers, uh, based in the the Netherlands. Uh, Roland, before I let you go, um, I always like to ask my guests to uh, tell me something fun that I don't know about what they think the world is going to look like in the next decade or so. Any predictions or where you see the world going in the next uh, 10 to 20 years? No, I mean, the
0: the one thing complexity literacy tells you is that predictions are a form of poetry. And, uh, and so they're, they're completely useless. We, we these they're, they're not forecastable. So I have hopes and ambitions and, uh, but I think forecasts is, is really uh, is, is, is almost impossible. I think if we take climate policy seriously, and that's a, still a big if, I think the world, so many other things will change. This is not just about replacing every brown electron with a green electron, is our social norms will be different. Um, and I think we have the potential to invent a better world because you know the place we inherit, it's pretty cool, but it's certainly not perfect. And if you're gonna reinvent it, might as well make it better, right? <laughs> Which should be
1: fun too. Well, on that very hopeful note for the future, I'd like to thank you, Roland, for joining us and to the audience, thanks again. Thank you
0: for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org slash international.